We're going to read Matthew 5, 17 through 20, page 810. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Kevin. I get to see firsthand, week after week, his heart and desire to learn every part of your word and to be able to joyfully and respectfully and reverently teach it to all of us. God, I pray that you give him great joy this morning as he is able to share us what he's learned. God, thank you for his gifting. Thank you for equipping him to lead us to constantly pray for all of the members in this room, to constantly pray for those in this city who do not know you. God, we thank you for him. We thank you for his heart. God, we pray that he has peace and joy as he brings your message to us this morning. Help our hearts be open as we listen. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. excited to have more people up here doing the welcome. Um, I knew it would probably sync up at a time when Amy did it, when I preached, and, you know, it wasn't that embarrassing, so we were doing okay. <laughs> well, this is kind of a hard passage, but it's a great one. And I just want to start out this way. Um, we want a standard. We can reach for ourselves, and we want someone to tell us how we can go about reaching it. I'll repeat that. We want a standard that we feel like we can reach ourselves, and we want someone to tell us how we can go about reaching it. We're in an age, of course, where the Bible is questioned, where it's ridiculed as a guide, as a standard, in a day when self-betterment resources are everywhere. And in this world that's more and more instant, that's more and more visual, what I think it sadly results in is us getting those things more and more through images like memes, and videos from TikTok, places like that. On May 3rd, a Tucson, Arizona native posted what was purported to be a video of him removing a Gila monster from his garage. But in the video that, that ended up going viral, the man claims that the Gila monster is one of the most venomous lizards in the world. And a lot of experts have taken issue with that. They said they're really not that dangerous. There's been no recorded deaths from their bites. They're rarely seen when they are. They're not even that aggressive. But one man with an iPhone and a TikTok account can give a lizard a bad name. Today, social media is littered with people, you may not know this, but speaking about spirituality whose credentials are no better than this man. People ripping on the Bible, people telling people, on the other hand, how they can live better lives, people telling us what we want to hear, people who are far more dangerous than a Gila monster. Because they have this desire to raise themselves higher, they lower the standard of what God expects. And this is what the Pharisees are doing back in Jesus' day. 
institution, they're the establishment, they're the trusted teachers, they're respected leaders, but they're taking God's word and they're actually tearing it down. And they're creating this other standard that they think they can live up to. And through their teaching, through their living, they're encouraging those around them to join them on that path. And here in Matthew, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls them out as the truly dangerous monsters that they are. Well, the Pharisees accused Jesus of destroying the scriptures, for twisting them, for distorting them. Remember, he comes on the scene and he's saying all these perplexing, controversial things. But Christ says here so clearly, it's not him, it's them. They're the ones perverting the word of God. He's the one setting things straight. And as we mentioned before, here on this hill, on this mount, we see a new, better Moses. We see Jesus take the words of the law and help us understand their true meaning, especially as, co as compared to what the Pharisees were saying. We'll look at six paragraphs each of the next several weeks here in chapter 5, and each starts with basically the same words. You've heard that it was said, and then Jesus straightened things out for us. He debunks one lie at a time. And these verses that we look at today, verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5, they serve as an intro to the rest of the chapter. And Jesus here on this mount, he teaches the point, the goal of Scripture, and with it, he explains where it all goes, where it all points, just how far deep it penetrates, just how far wide it extends. He tells us about the story of God's Word, and he tells us about the standard of God's Word. First, let's hear what he says about the story of God's Word. We'll start by seeing Christ's claim here. He says this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Now, in talking about the law and the prophets, Jesus here is using this shorthand term that refers to the whole of the Jewish Bible, what makes up our Old Testament. The Lord is saying, contrary to those teachers out there, I'm not here to tear all that down. I'm actually here to fulfill it. But when he uses that word, what does he mean? Well, there are a lot of kids uh, running around here at Karas, if you haven't noticed. And I know there are a lot of moms and dads with painful Lego wounds on their feet, right? We've all likely been in a situation where you have a kid that's down on the ground playing with Legos. They're carefully building up the structure. They're all excited about it. And up walks another kid, and they walk up, and they give it a kick, and they tear it all down. Jesus is saying here, whatever those guys over there may be saying, I'm not doing that. But back to that picture again, just um, imagine one of the adults there, down on the ground with their kids, is an artist, and she can do things with Legos that you and I can't imagine, and she takes that same box, she digs out piece by piece, and she somehow turns them all into the stunning sculpture of Jesus. That's what I think the Lord is saying here. All of those words, all of those pages, when they're put together rightly, they take their shape in me. Jesus says, I fulfill them. I do. Now, when we think of that word fulfillment, our minds generally go straight to prophecies, predicted prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And that's part of it. Yeah, we've already seen that here in Matthew. 
You may have been here when we looked at chapter 2, where Matthew quotes Micah 5 to you that says Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's one example. But Christ's fulfillment is so much bigger than that. Later in chapter 2, in verses 13 and 15, where Joseph takes Mary and the baby Jesus, and they flee to Egypt for a while, and then they return. And verse 15 reads this way. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. There he quotes Hosea 11.1 1, and says Jesus fulfilled that, but, but how does that work? In the book of Hosea, if you go and read that, it's clearly talking about Israel and them fleeing at the exodus. Here's how I think it works. It's not just the obvious prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It's all the stories, too. They all point to Jesus. The history of Israel finds its fulfillment in him. He is the true son that Israel, God's chosen people, pointed ahead to. They're called the son in the Old Testament as well. It all reaches ahead. It all finds its fulfillment in him. The, the temple, the sacrificial system. Christ comes on the scene and confuses people, saying he's the temple. He's God's presence come to earth. He's the sacrifice, a full and final one that allows us to approach the presence of God. And even think about our theme here, over Matthew, our king, his kingdom. He's the king that all of those kings in the Old Testament pointed ahead to. He's the new, better David, the anointed one, the ruler, the hero we all want. And even that promised land points to the kingdom that he's establishing now and will one day bring to completion. He'll one day rule over the whole earth as king with us, his chosen nation, made up of people from every tribe and tongue, will be right there with him. All of our Old Testament comes together as one big arrow that points toward Jesus Christ. Now, these four verses really seem to serve as four steps. The first here is what Jesus claims, that he's the point of the law and the prophets. That he's not there tearing things down. In the second step, Jesus explains, he clarifies that statement, and he gives a promise. Every single word still stands. Verse 18 again. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Not an iota. Okay, so this is a little, maybe a little confusing, but... But the New Testament was written in, in Greek. But what he's seeming to do there is use the name of a small Greek letter to refer to the smallest Hebrew letter, which is a yod. Not a dot. There he's likely referring to the really small tap of the pen that actually is used to distinguish several Hebrew letters from one another. Jesus is saying, as the NIV puts it, not the smallest letter. Not the least stroke of a pen is going to go away until every single thing is fulfilled. And that won't happen, he says, until the end of the age, when this world passes away and the new heavens and the new earth come. Jesus says, these words can't be destroyed. They're going to stand until the end when every single thing is fulfilled in me. But you may wonder, does Jesus really mean that? Does he really mean what he said for every word? Every letter? Really? You know, have you, have you read the Old Testament? It's common
on places like TikTok. You say that sex is for marriage, and marriage is for a man and a woman, and you get that from the Bible? Well, hopefully, you're staying away from shellfish and bacon. Hopefully, you're still making your sacrifices in the temple. Hopefully, you're still stoning people that commit adultery. And then they drop the mic, they walk away, and it sounds pretty clever, it gets some claws, but it really reveals a real ignorance of the Bible, and it ignores these important words of Jesus right here in Matthew 5. He fulfills all those commands, because clearly the coming of Jesus means that, yes, it stands, but still things have changed. Now, here's how many Christians approach it in this way. In the Old Testament, in Moses' law, you have three different kinds, civil, ceremonial, and moral. You have the rules that kept order within the nation of Israel, the civil law, things like stoning, things like that. You had rules for worship, the ceremonial law that, that talked about how you would conduct yourself in the temple with the sacrifices, how you could approach God in purity, things like that. And then you had the Ten Commandments and other statements about what's right and wrong, the moral law. When Jesus came, it goes, he fulfilled the civil law. Because now God's people is no longer a nation state. We're comprised of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. There's no more need for a temple or for sacrifices. But the moral law, all of that still stands. Now, I would say that I don't think that's helpful. The Bible doesn't really put things in those categories. But I think it's just far better to say that Jesus has fulfilled all of it. That it's all found its goal in Jesus. And that's what I think this passage in Matthew 5 says. Every word, every letter, every brush stroke stands. But now, and this is important, they find their continuing relevance only in Christ and what he has done. For that reason, I say pass the bacon. Mark 7, 19 explains, Jesus has made all foods clean. Don't do animal sacrifices. That may be a relief to you. That's not required of you anymore. They're not just unnecessary. They're blasphemous, right? Because they undermine Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that none of the Ten Commandments and other moral commands don't also find their way over into the New Testament and become a part of what Paul refers to as the law of Christ. We cannot tear down any of God's words we do interpret them, though, by what Jesus has accomplished and what he now calls us to do. So Jesus stands here, and he's saying, those guys over there, they're missing the point. Do you know why? Because I'm the point. As God, the Son, he has the authority to speak like that. And as, God's the, as God, the Son, he is the point of every word. Pharisees are sitting in their cars at the roundabout, not moving, waving other cars through, turning that intersection into a four-way stop, instead of keeping the thing moving, right? Or they're driving around in circles instead of actually getting anywhere, you know, making it into this self-congratulating cul-de-sac. They're turning God's word into something it was never intended to be. They're taking God's people in an entirely different direction. They're actually taking things backward, away from the law's very goal, and they're accusing Jesus of doing something wrong. And that's because they're trying to puff themselves up, and Christ is sucking the wind out of their sails. 
get to that later. First, though, the story of the Bible points to Jesus the King. The story does. Let's move on to the second main point. And what I think is the third step in Christ's argument, Jesus gives a warning. In verse 19, he says this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying? Well, because not one word of God's law is going to be destroyed, and they're all going to last until they've all been fulfilled, you better keep them and teach others to do the same or else. Now, I don't think Jesus is setting up two categories of people in heaven. Those who don't obey and are called the least, or those who do and are called the great. No. He's really saying, it seems, who's going to be in and who's going to be out. Now, if we speed ahead to Matthew 7, there are those who enter by the narrow gate and encounter life. There are, there are those who go through the gate that's wide and enter destruction. There are those who bear good fruit. There are those who bear bad fruit. And who it says will one day be cut down and thrown into the fire. There are those who call him Lord and don't do what he says. And those who do obey and will enter the kingdom. There are those who build their lives on the rock. And there are those who build them on the sand. Each of those groups is separated by how they respond to and how they teach the words of God. That's the first thing we need to understand about the standard that Jesus gives. It goes wide, right? It includes everything. Things that seem to be obviously a big deal. What the Pharisees would call the weightier things. As well as the commands that seem less important, what they would call lighter. It includes all of us, all of it. And of course, we understand again how it's fulfilled in Christ, but we're meant to believe and do and teach all of it. And those who lead and teach will be accountable for how faithfully they do it. Well, lest you get this false impression that you have a pastor or a team of pastors that has everything together. Um, I'll tear that down with this story. But I now have two team drivers and not too long from now I have a third. And no surprise, but one thing I constantly remind them to do, not do, is text and drive, right? You've heard that. It's supposedly much more dangerous than if you drive drunk. I wish I could say that I've never done it, though. Um, anyway, one time I was driving down the interstate. I believe I had all three kids in the car, and I listened to this voicemail. And it was from another older pastor in town wanting to know if Karis would want to provide music for an event. Now, I knew Bobby and his crew were far too busy. I, I just knew there wasn't a point of asking. And they wouldn't have been, honestly, really that excited about the gig at all. I had my Apple Watch on. I thought I'd shoot Bobby a quick text again while I was driving. So I said something like this. I was like, hey, Bobby, I got this request from Pastor Blank. I know you'll have really no interest in doing this at all, but I felt like I should just pass it on. I don't remember exactly what I said, but we'll just say that was a charitable you know, version of that. And then it started to sin. But, you know, Siri isn't quite as smart as often she thinks she is. And I soon realized that I was texting the other person, too. And I was frantically trying to hit my watch to make it somehow not sin. 
I was trying to figure out whatever I could do, and my kids chose right then, that minute, to rebuke me for my hypocrisy. <laughs> so the more I looked, the more they screamed. The more I tapped, the more they freaked out. And yeah, the text ended up going to both. Now, I think I was saved by the fact that I don't know if this particular person sends or receives text. I've never really been sure, but I did set my kids a very good example there. In the big things and the small things, we're meant to take them seriously, to teach and model them rightly. Okay, I need you to switch gears on a more serious note. You may not be aware of this, but we were aided as a church plant in the beginning by funds that came from the Southern Baptist Convention. I graduated from the flagship SBC Seminary in Kentucky. Uh, we still have some loose ties with that denomination. But you probably heard of the explosion that happened a couple weeks ago that's shaken up the SBC. Recently, an independent investigation determined that the denomination's executive committee had orchestrated and maintained a vast cover-up of pastors and ministry leaders who had committed sexual abuse. And that, that list was released. I even knew one of the, the names. They had this list. Instead of letting it hit the news and... They even used the language of interrupting the ministry they were doing. They swept it under the rug, and more and more people got hurt. Now, this is as the same officials were fighting against and exposing other areas that they didn't feel that lined up with God's word, some of which were legit, many of which were not. Let me just say that this is sad, this is evil, this is wrong. It, it, it's going to make us continue to question that partnership. It's always been, frankly, quite difficult. But it's wrong, and God will hold us accountable to obey it all and also to teach it all. That's what God is saying here. I want to turn to the fourth step of Christ's argument here, where he tells us where all this goes. He tells us our need, our need. Now, when Pharisees probably first heard verse 19, you know, they probably were feeling pretty good. You know, they thought, of course, we're following every letter. I mean, we're the Pharisees. They were teaching the people to keep every word. But Jesus drops this bomb on them in verse 20, and he no doubt causes that crowd to gasp. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this, I think, brings us full circle to where I started. The Pharisees had created this standard that they thought they could reach. And they sought to teach other people how to reach that themselves. As we're going to see here in the rest of Matthew 5, they would point out, hey, we haven't murdered. We haven't committed adultery. You know, they said they hadn't committed divorce, or at least when she didn't deserve it. They didn't lie because they knew the, the, the proper way to make oaths. They at times got even with their enemies, but, you know, they, they thought they were doing it in a way that the Old Testament permitted and yeah, they love people, they would say, but really, the people that look just like them? Jesus says here, that kind of righteousness isn't good enough. It's only external. Jesus explains just how deep the Bible standard goes. It goes down to the heart. You see, the Pharisees, they weren't submitting to the Bible at all. They were just using the Bible. Right? They were interpreting it in a way that made them feel good, that puffed themselves up. 
They dumbed it down. They lowered its standard. But Jesus says, unless your obedience goes deeper than that, you will not be in my kingdom. He puts it another way. In the last verse of chapter 5, kind of a bracket. Brackets, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Perfection. So here's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Paul Tripp, others have put it this way. Something that we try to do ourselves. They were trying to staple fruit onto the limbs of a dead tree. So can you imagine that? You're up on your, your deck. You're looking out over your fence. You see your neighbor over there. You look out. He's got the staple gun. And he's next to these, this dead tree, old, brittle, black limbs. And he's taking apples. And he's using the staple gun. And he's stapling them on there. You're just like, man, that's, that's not going to work. What are you thinking? Here's what Jesus wants to do. He wants uh, to make us into new trees with new roots that produce real fruit. As the band Waterdeep has put it, that we sing here all the time, to our blackened branches, he'll bring the springtime green of new life. From us will come fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that glorifies God. Think about how the crowds would have heard these words again. They would have thought, these are the super holy people. They're our teachers. They're the experts. They're the ones that have been to school. The ones who are supposed to tell us what to do. And Jesus says we have to be better than them? Really? And Jesus would reply, exactly. You have to do much better than them. In fact, my standard is perfection. And that would have sucked all the wind out of their sails, but it would have made them ready. And that, of course, would have been the point, to point to him. He's the only one that meets that standard, the standard of perfection. As we look at God's word, we realize, if we're honest, that we can never measure up, that we're poor in spirit, as we've already seen, and that we each need the riches that are only found in Christ. It makes us run to him, empty and poor, begging for his forgiveness, asking for his righteousness. The story of the Bible points to Jesus the King, but also the standard of the Bible points to Jesus the King. Now, if, we, if we're honest again, we will all admit that we struggle to get close to that standard. But here's how we generally try to tackle this problem. And I've said this many times here, but we, we act like the problem is outside of us, but the solution can be found inside of us. And man, social media, it, it reinforces that. The problem's out there, the solution is in there. So my circumstances, my relationships, my job, my family, right? This, you, them, that, that's the problem. But with just a little bit of help, maybe the right combination of videos or blog posts, I've got what I need right here. I just need to tap into and follow after my heart. But sadly, the truth is just the opposite of that. The problem is actually in here, in our hearts. Our hearts that want to worship things other than God, and especially ourselves. Our hearts that overflow in sins of thought, word, and deed. And the solution is actually on the outside. It's found in this story of God that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It's found in measuring up to the standard of God, something we could never, ever do. And so those truths drive us 
to what the Bible calls justification, where we put on Christ's righteousness like a white robe, and then we stop the prepping and preening of ourselves. Okay, so let's say that you and me, we know Jesus is the focus of the story of the Bible. We know Jesus is the hope for the standard of the Bible, and we want more of him, we want more of that. What do we do with these verses here? I've already given you some ideas, but here are five quick additional ideas, or summary ideas. First, read your Bible and look for Jesus on every page. I don't mean in a, you know, where's Waldo kind of way, where you're trying to, like, find weird Bible codes and stuff. If you start doing that, you know, you've gone too far. But how do we see Christ fulfilling all the stories and commands and images? How does it point to him? How does it take us to the gospel and not more rules that we try to keep and fail again and again. But here's an even more basic question. Are we reading our Bible? A whole lot of professing Christians today, there's just the amount of people that read their Bible, and I'm not trying to keep guilt on you. I'm trying to do the opposite here. But most people don't. If we don't think we can see Jesus, if we're not feeling much hope, that may be why. But maybe we don't even realize that or get to that point because we're so much stuffing our hearts with TikTok and other things. So let's get in God's word. Second, take every word seriously as it's meant to be understood. So if God's word settles it, let's hear it. Let's seek to believe it. The small things, the big things. And think about this. If God is God, if he is bigger and wiser and stronger than us, we would expect that he would say things that would challenge us and unsettle us. So we would do well to open its pages and expect that every time we read it. And if that never happens, we're probably only seeing what we want to see, and our God probably looks a little too much like us. Third, obey and teach every word as fulfilled in Christ. We're not just supposed to read it and even cherish it. He wants us to live it out in his strength for his glory, to put it into action, even if it's hard. And we have to trust the Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, to live it all out. Sure, we'll fall as we try to walk in line with the story. Sure, we'll fail. We'll miss the standard all the time. But little by little, if we're in Christ, God will guide us and grow us in following his word. Fourth, let the words humble and transform your heart. Again, the Pharisees were just focusing on externals. They only took things skin deep. They made up their own man-made rules to kind of evade things. But the Bible, the gospel, speaks to the core of who we are. Who or what are, are we cherishing in our hearts? What's going on in here that spills out on the exterior? Are our hearts full of anger? or love, impatience, or grace, because God wants to meet us there. And really, that was the problem when I was driving down I-70 trying to mess with my watch. It wasn't really the texting. It was that I had an arrogant, unloving heart. Fifth, reach up to Jesus and let go of your own efforts. Just realize with me that there's no point in trying to lower the standard of God, to minimize our sin, to maximize, to maximize our goodness. That gap between God and us will always be there, 
And the only way it will be filled up is with the person and work of Jesus. And all we're doing is stealing away our own joy. Thank you. 